Please join me in Psalm 85. Psalm 85, and I want to address revival prayer tonight. And I want to inspire your hope that it is a worthy thing to pray for revival. Let me say thank you so much for your attendance in the summer, and really thank you for your attendance all year long through this year. We began to promote some specific studies during our time together, and we developed a four o'clock service, and our children developed their choirs. Uh, what we essentially did is that we took about 15 out of the six o'clock hour. Well, we didn't take them, but about 15 went from the six o'clock hour to that four o'clock hour, and that 15 has become consistently 30. In fact, there were 32 there today, that time. Took about, I think, 15 kids, and they became the children's choir, and consistently they are 30 uh, over there. Uh, and uh, in fact, that might be a low estimate. Uh, is that about what you all have in children's choir when you all are in, Matt? Uh, we were about 25. 20, okay, 25, all right. Well, thank you. I want to avoid the exaggeration, but that 15's become about 25. And um, you all have uh, been about 60. Uh, but during the summer, if you put all three of those numbers together, we're running about 105 on average in all three meetings, which is 15 more than what we did at our best in the spring and fall when we were together. So uh, now when the spring and fall are in, we're up to 120 and 130, uh, somewhere between that. So I want to thank you. You've done a real good job. You've taken a hit at the six o'clock hour and you're low tonight. Of course, our teenagers are gone with some of their activities this evening. Speaking of them, please pray for them. Uh, it is hot outside. They're spending the afternoon there. And um, uh, we've had a few upset stomachs. Nothing, I don't think anything major up to this point. Uh, but we're trying to marinate them in Gatorade uh, during the day. So uh, please pray for them. We did have, of course, you know, our teenagers are running this camp and they're doing a lot of not only basketball and soccer, they're doing spiritual ministry as well. And they shared the gospel today and five kids gave themselves to Christ. And we um, praise the Lord for that. We anticipate that more will inquire tomorrow. And so your prayers are very, very important and very necessary. They're sharing the gospel with some kids who, of course, have never heard it and uh, whose parents uh, are not um, engaged in getting to them the word. And so I'm, I'm thankful that they are um, very eager to do so. And uh, we appreciate your prayers. Uh, I, want, I want you to have hope when you pray for revival. I do need to start with a little bad news and that... Uh, that actually leads to some bad news that can become good news. But there is a relationship between what goes on in the church and what takes place in the world and vice versa. Uh, I recall the election of a certain president absolutely ruined the fellowship in my church. It did. Uh, he was coming in with the promise of tax hikes uh, when I was in my first pastorate. And it so aggravated my people because they were living in the highest tax county in the state of South Carolina. And with more tax hikes that would come in their income level, they were getting uh, strained uh, from every direction and run over. And that exhausted them. And it ran, it, it, they emptied themselves of their patients long before they ever got to church. And so committee meetings and uh, church council meetings and deacons meetings became difficult after that. And all the growth, and uh, not all, but a good bit of the growth that we had had, they just tore up after that because they couldn't get along with each other. Uh, you need to know what takes place outside in people's lives and their families and pocketbooks can affect what goes on inside. These are not two separate worlds. We don't live. We live in one world. 
God's intention is that what takes place inside the church is to dramatically what takes place outside. And historically, there have been some instances where the effect has been dramatic and uh, lovely. In fact, uh, I've got an appendix on page 11 that will uh, describe in detail specifically some of the things that have taken place when God's people have been revived and awakening has ensued. Revival takes place among God's people. It's a revivification of those who are already alive in Christ Jesus. And I'm not real tight on the terminology. There are people that want to say, well, meetings are not revivals, and I'm not really interested in that debate, and that revival doesn't take place outside, only inside. That's true, but I don't police or patrol people's language. I think that's rude. But technically, revival does happen in the church, and when that happens to one degree or another, there's an awakening in the lost community, and they come to Christ to one degree or another. And that's what I want you to pray for. Uh, Let me give you a basic theology of revival. The reality of human nature should keep God's people from being surprised that we need revival. We are sinners and we drift. And that's the story of the Bible. There's coming a day when there'll be no more drifting. Uh, But until then, we need constant renewal and revival. And that is also the story of the scripture. So do not be surprised when we stray and drift. We need to be revived. And that is constant and frequent. That is what worries me about churches giving up on revival. It's a denial on it's a denial of the reality of human nature. It is. And you've got to have some means, some measure to bring the people back to God in some way, shape, or form. It is not a wise thing for churches to give up on local church revivals. Uh, They may take a different form. They may be a Bible conference. They may be uh, uh, something else, you know. Uh, But a concentrated time where the people seek God was actually part of Israel's calendar in the festival of tabernacles, the festival of booths, the festival of uh, all those festivals that they ended up having where Israel was called back to God. And it was at one of those where the church was born, the festival of Pentecost. And so that's what happened there. And I've had one pastor tell me, yeah, that wasn't even scheduled. I said, yes, it was. It'd been on the calendar for centuries. Don't tell us that was, yeah, it was giving of the law, my soul. So yes, you can schedule that time and seek God and he can come through. It's not a wise thing for churches to give up on local church revivals. Uh, you're begging for depravity to run unchecked when that happens. So some way or another, the people have got to be called back to God in a concentrated time in one shape, form, or another. Second, revival refills God's people with power, holiness, zeal, love, and closeness to the Lord. That's a theme of Psalms 119 when it speaks uh, all those times about revival. You find David there frequently saying, revive me according to your righteousness. Revive me according to your law, uh, frequently in Psalms 119. Uh, In fact, Psalms 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible and the longest chapter in the Bible on revival. Third, revival results in an awakening among the lost to one degree or another. And that's what took place next too. Uh, The church was moved and filled by the Holy Spirit. And the result was is that 3,000 came to Christ that day. Uh, That's not an unusual occurrence when there's revival. Fourth, uh, revival is the work of a sovereign God to be sure. Now I will tell you, if you ever attend a denominational meeting where they start talking about revival, some cranky person's going to throw water on the meeting and the enthusiasm. He's going to say, yes, but revival is a sovereign work of God, as if you ought not get too excited or uh, expectant that God will send one. You know, God's sovereignty will prevent him from sending a revival. <laughs> God is sovereign. 
But God also makes promises. And because he's sovereign, he can keep them. And so what the scripture emphasizes is not that revival is a sovereign work of God. It assumes that, but that's not the emphasis. The scripture emphasizes that God, that revival is a merciful work of God. When God's people get miserable and desperate, God comes through. And, and we'll camp on that in a little bit later. Then number six, it's impossible for an individual Christian. Well, number five, I'm sorry. God promises to send revival when his people travel its, its uh, route. Uh, that's the, he says, if you'll fulfill the conditions, I'm already ready to do it. If we don't have revival, by the way, it's not God's fault. Never has been. He's always ready at a moment's notice to renew, revivify, uh, refill those who are now empty. Number six, it's impossible then for an individual Christian to go before God on his terms and fail to experience revival. Impossible. Unless God is a liar. But is God a liar? No. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? And so that becomes the platform for great expectation that God will come through. Now that's a basic theology of revival. And in Psalms 85, David asked for revival in three ways. One specifically and two implicitly. Uh, in verse 4, he says, restore us. And that's what we're asking for with revival. Verse 6, revive us, enliven us, give us the life that we first have. And verse 7, show us your mercy and grant us your salvation. Actually, four ways. So all of time inspires hope when we pray for revival is uh, the uh, theme of this, uh, or the central biblical truth of this passage uh, in Psalms 85. All time is revival time. No time, past, present, or future, hinders revival at all. Now, tentatively then, we will begin with a view towards this, morning prayer meetings on Tuesdays beginning August the 16th. And we'll begin them at 8 o'clock. That's tentative at this point. And we've got uh, our deacons divided into six teams that we did for our weekend with Dr. Patterson and the prayer time we had then and some of the ministries they did, some classes that we've put together there that we're asking to meet with us as well. Uh, one the first Tuesday, uh, others the second Tuesday, the third and the fourth. We'll start with those on the third Tuesday because we're starting August the 16th. When there's a fifth Tuesday, staff will meet to pray uh, for uh, revival and for some other needs as well. But that's what we're looking towards. And I want to ask you to be a part of this. You've been part of the prayer study. We've tried to coach up some in some of your praying and encourage you and uh, give some biblical instruction on that. And I think the practical outworking of that is that we just need to get together with God as a people and pray and plead with him to come through powerfully. Well, there's hope when we do. There, there's hope in the first place because of a hopeful past. When we uh, pray, we pray in hope for revival because of a hopeful past. And in verses 1 through 3, you've got an emphasis on the past. Uh, Warren Wiersbe says here that, uh, that this psalm was probably written after the Jewish people returned to their land following the 70 years of captivity in Babylon. Note the emphasis on the land and on God's anger against his people. Now, in response, God gave them favor with their captors, raised up leaders like Zerubbabel the governor, Joshua the high priest, and Ezra the scribe, and protected the Jewish remnant as they traveled to their war-ravaged land. In other words, the request of verses 1 through 3 were answered. And he reflects on this and bases his hope for revival in God's action in the past. Look at verses 1 through 3. Lord, 
you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people and have covered all their sin. You have taken away all your wrath and have turned from the fierceness of your uh, anger. There are at least two past tense statements uh, in every one of these verses. And so he is looking back at the past and it is inspiring him that there is hope for the future in, uh, as they pray, for revival. Verse 1, there's past restoration of captives. What a remarkable thing. And it makes perfectly good sense that that would inspire hope for a revival in his day. In other words, uh, even Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 45, the event that would happen in Babylon, that the heart of Cyrus would be moved to release the captives. Now that required that Cyrus's kingdom defeat Babylon. So Persia, Cyrus's kingdom, would defeat Babylon. Cyrus would then have purview and rule over the Jews. The Babylonians were hostile, hateful, captors. The Persians were more into freedom. And so therefore, the Babylonians would not let them go. But Jeremiah said, after 70 years, you're coming back home. And at right, the right time, the Persians took over the Babylonians and God let them go back home. You've got these large international movements that are the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. It's what you have in the biblical text. Ladies and gentlemen, national events do not keep God from doing what he's promised to do. And so there's past restoration of uh, captives. He moved nations to fulfill his promise. Then he forgave their sins. And these are sins if you'll read through the Kings and the Chronicles, that incited God to put them into captivity in the first place. In other words, it was better for them to be taken out of the land and many of them to die than to continue in the state that they were in. They were better, uh, of better use to God in Babylon than they were in their homeland. That's how wicked they had become. And yet, verse 2, you've forgiven those iniquities of your people. You've covered all their sins. Hey, there's no sin in the past that can keep God from sending revival if the sinner will humble himself or herself and repent and come before God and plead the blood and mercy. Then, past removal of anger. You've taken away all your wrath and you've turned from the fierceness of your anger. Anger, the anger of God is not the last word. Hope is anytime somebody humbles himself and repents. So we base our hope for a coming revival on the fact that God does not change from the past. And the $400 college word for that is immutability. That's the immutability of God. Now look at your neighbor and say, immutability of God. There you go. You said it just right. Good. That simply means that's a theological word for the fact that God does not... <laughs> Y'all are high-fiving each other up there. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty sneaky that is that is Sean. but uh, uh, the immutability of God is God does not change he is not mutable he cannot mutate he does not change at all he is the same or as Hebrews 13 8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever and so he remains the same and so how he has dealt with the captives 
in the past is a frame of reference for thinking of how he'll deal with us today. And the psalmist says, we can hope that God will do, verse number six, which is really the central verse uh, and the theme verse of the passage. We can hope he'll do verse number six in us today because of what he's done for the captives in the past. In this case, God will not change concerning his faithfulness to his promises. So our our own nation's past history then gives us hope. And that's Appendix A, and I'm not going to go through all of this. But during times of revival and awakening in the nation, there have been political results. Um, The First Amendment, for example, was born out of an awakening. Uh, That happened especially among the Baptist and Methodists. The First Great Awakening caused uh, Baptist churches in the North to to, uh, increase by 1,000%, in the South by 1,500%. They were persecuted, but then after the awakening, they had the political power to get James Madison's attention and cause him to introduce the First Amendment to the Constitution. don't, Don't crow too much about this, but amongst our folks, make no mistake about it, that First Amendment is a Baptist amendment. It was actually in the Virginia Constitution first, but its presence there was due to the work of a couple Baptist evangelists and James Madison. Judicial results, uh, crime has nearly disappeared from some large cities in the United States because of revival and an awakening. Judges have lost their jobs, and so have many in the police force. Commercial results, uh, in Wales, bankruptcies were at an all-time high, and even in the Northeast during the global awakening, 1904-1910, because... um, uh, the bars and saloons closed. Uh, social results, uh, drinking and gambling uh, nearly disappeared. In fact, gambling became illegal in my hometown of Houston, Texas because of the global awakening. And uh, by the way, the expansion of gambling in our own day is not a sign of revival, but the opposite. And then spiritual results are numerous. Uh, the call of missionaries, uh, the burgeoning of churches. J.J. Cheek, pastor of First Baptist Paducah, Uh, where Dr. White used to pastor, um, uh, saw God pour out a mighty awakening in Paducah. uh, And uh, in one month, uh, he baptized a thousand new converts and died from overwork. The first and last time a Baptist preacher's ever died from that. But uh, in any case, that's what took place there. In all of all places, the isolated uh, little town of Paducah, uh, Kentucky. So what God has done in the past inspires us to pursue him for revival. You're not wasting your time when you seek God for revival. But that's not all. We pray and hope for revival because of a hopeful present. And that's verses 4 through 7 where the present tense is prominent. There's a present need for restoration from God's anger. Then there's a present opportunity to rejoice in God's mercy. Let's look at his anger in verses 4 through 6. They cry out, restore us, O God, of our salvation, and cause your anger towards us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us that your people may rejoice in you? In fact, verse 6 is the basis of one of our old hymns. Uh, Apparently, God answered this promise. His anger came to cease. And if it can come to cease before the death death and resurrection of Christ with Israel, it it can come to an end after the death and resurrection of Christ in the church. And so uh, that is not the last word. But then there's a present opportunity to rejoice in his mercy. Show us your mercy, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. He's pleading for that now. God is not a God who maintains his anger forever and ever and ever. God would rather save and forgive than judge. 
every time. Therefore, Calvary. Calvary is a remarkable statement of the awesome love of God for those who have sinned. Now, David Bryant builds upon this idea of the present work of God to encourage revival in his book, The Hope at Hand. It's a little dated, uh, but I think everything he states there is uh, still quite true. And what he argues for is that there are seven current realities that are taking place in our world that encourage us to seek God for revival now and to anticipate a mighty revival sent by the Spirit in our own day. Number one, God still wants his son to be glorified. That has not changed. And when there is not revival, Jesus is not glorified to the extent that he could be glorified. He wants Christ magnified above all. He wants him lifted up. He has an intense affection for his son. And please never minimize that. Never, never underestimate that. He is dear, deeply affectionately in love with his son and he wants him exalted but when sin prevails and the church is at a low ebb Jesus is not glorified to the extent he should be and that gets the attention of the father when people set their hearts where the father's hearts are though and they have a desire for Jesus to be magnified like the father has they can expect revival second God loves his church and is the great healer and God of restoration God's love for our church is as intense and strong today as it was when it began in 1959, and it's as intense and strong today as it was when the church in Acts began in Acts chapter 2. God loves us, and he cares deeply about our affairs. He cares about the power that we have. He cares about our influence in every facet of our church that it may be used to magnify his son. And when churches are at a low ebb, He's the healer and the God of restoration, and he knows how to do it. Now he knows how to do it. Currently, he knows how to do it. Third, the church is praying more today than ever before. I, I, I know at least since 1984, nearly all the Bible-believing groups have brought people onto the denominational or mission board staffs to strategize to move the people of God to pray. There are more prayer ministries taking place and urging prayer and calling for prayer today than ever before. We've just elected our fourth Southern Baptist Convention president who is on that theme, the fourth one. The first one was Frank Page, then Fred Luter, then Ronnie Floyd, now Steve Gaines. That's been intentional and strategic uh, in the SBC so that we can plead with God for revival. The presidential term is only two years, by the way, and so you've got to elect a number to get a vision accomplished and to influence an entire denomination uh, that is... Um, Pretty ADD, to be quite honest with you. Uh, I tried to do it in, in, just in this state, and it's a challenge when you don't have the pulpit every Sunday. But uh, in any case, that, uh, that's just what's going on among our own people. That's not all the other good Bible-believing groups around the world and throughout our nation. Number four, more are concerned about revival today than ever before. There is no one that believes that things are going well now. And I don't know of anyone who doesn't believe that revival is not the answer. They all believe revival is the answer, that we need a fresh move of God. Number five, God's plan is revival and he doesn't change. And to as a witness to that, the church today is 83 million times larger now than when it began. Now that figure is from 1995. It's 21 years ago. And it's done nothing but continue to burgeon, grow, and expand south of the equator and even in Europe. 
the old stock Protestant facilities on the continent of Europe are experiencing revival. But not with the old Anglos, but with immigrants from North Africa, the Middle East, and Latin America. They're purchasing their ch these church buildings and they're doing a Bible-thumping, devil-shoving, prayer-meeting type ministry. And they are covering the place up with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, scattered spots throughout Europe, some awesome things are happening because of them. And then, the Russian um, German Baptist, the Russian-speaking German Baptist in the former Eastern Europe are having a powerful movement of God. In fact, they have uh, filled up uh, Southwestern Seminary's extension campus over there in Bonn, Germany. By the way, one of the sweet and delicious ironies of history is that the former Green Party in Berlin went out of existence and they sold their building cheap to Southwestern Seminary and we now have a seminary there. Number six, the world is dark and that's when God always sends revival. Revival does not come at the high point. Revival comes at the low point. And God has been faithful at the low point when his people cry out in desperation to send revival. And number next, God is calling many more missionaries today. This means he intends on saving many people. He calls missionaries in preparation for a great harvest. And so if he's calling that many, uh, that means they're going to be needed. Because God does not mismanage his resources. He doesn't mismanage his work, his business. Uh, he's got the right personnel, the right places to call the nations to come to Jesus Christ. So there are some current truths about God and his ways in revival that do not change. The third item here is this. We pray and hope for revival because of a hopeful future. A past, a present, and a future. And that verse, that's verses 8 through 13. Now it is our tendency when we have two legitimate concepts and they appear to put us in tension for us not to hold them together with consistency, but to fall off one side or to fall off the other. Uh, for example, uh, when I visited churches and I heard people say frequently, the staff or the pastor or church leadership, when I would meet with them, we need to speak the truth in love. And I would hear that repeated. I knew there was probably a problem there with speaking the truth in love. That means that even though we're supposed to embrace truth and love, apparently there were some folks in the church, maybe the genetic descendants of Rambo or Genghis Khan, who <laughs> were exalting truth, but in an abrasive way, in a harmful, hurtful way. And they were not embracing love as well. Now, once in a while, I'd come across places that were embracing love and were dismissing the truth. Now, we see this in our own nation as well, um, the, uh, Josh McDowell said a number of years ago that Matthew 7, 1 has replaced John 3, 16 as the most quoted Bible verse in, uh, in America. Judge not lest you be judged instead of for God so loved the world. Well, that needs to be, that's true. Everything's true about Matthew 7, 1. I think it's abused and misused. But Jesus also said not only Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest you be judged, and then goes on to define what he means, but Jesus also said in John 7, 24, judge with righteous judgment. Have good judgment. Don't judge according to appearance, he said, but judge with righteous judgment. Have some good sense. Have some good judgment. Judge with appropriate standards. These two have got to be held uh, and obeyed, both of them, because both of them are commands. They're, they're enunciated by Jesus, both as commands. 
We're not supposed to be so narrow-minded that we squeeze our brains out. We're not supposed to be so open-minded that they fall out, right? We've got to hold on to both. Speak the truth in love. Judge not lest you be judged, but judge with righteous judgment is what Jesus said. So when we have these two things in tension, our tendency is to fall off one side or to fall off on the other. Ah, look at verses 8 through 13. None of that here. None of that here. What we've got in verse number, verses 8 and 9 in the future is a glorious message. This is, this is what will be resounded and cover up the earth. In other words, the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth like the seas do. The prophet Isaiah would say, and here's part of that message, I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. So peace, but don't let that move you towards folly. So the human tendency is in a time of peace to go where? Into folly. So we've got to hold both of these, peace and holiness. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him that glory may dwell in our land. So there's a glorious message, but then there's a glorious meeting in verses um, 10 through 13. Look what happens in verse number 10. You've got two items that can create tension in the human, not God. And look what they do. Mercy and truth have met together. They've come together at a table, and they've dined with each other. So they've met together, and then look what happens. The great harmonious relationship between righteousness and peace. Righteousness and peace in that day when God sends revival are so cooperative and so harmonious that they kiss. They greet each other as friends or perhaps even as lovers. The word is used for, for both here. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed as husband and wife. Therefore, look what happens. Truth shall spring out of the earth. Well, of course, in an atmosphere of mercy, that's precisely what happens. And righteousness in this atmosphere of peace, look what it does. It looks down from heaven. Looks down from heaven with the intention of caring for those upon whom it looks. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our pathway. This is what happens in the future when God sends revival. There is a hopeful future before us. All that God has commanded in his word is embraced and cherished and treasured by a revived people. This is what God does. So God promises to deliver a future in which God's people appreciate all of God's word and do not merely quote it or obey it selectively. Revived, they embrace and practice all of God's commands without favoring one over the other. There is good reason to pray for revival. There's hope for that, and God promises to come through. John Bazzano, in his book, The Power of Positive Praying, expounds on 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. And uh, he uses it wisely, of course. Excellent text on revival. He says, And if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and forgive their sin, and heal uh, their land. Interesting enough, uh, uh, each of those themes there is, uh, goes back to Genesis. Some of them, even Genesis 1 and 2, especially the land. And they uh, also, those themes from Second Chronicles 7.14, uh, 
uh, are found in the New Testament as well. Those are New Testament themes. So it's an excellent summary verse of how to seek God for a new day and for uh, revival. And John Bazzagno announces that. He explains to have revival, we've got to pray and seek his face, turn from our wicked ways if we're his people. And he states this, America is sick. Politicians, educators, financiers, intellectuals, social commentators have not a clue how to make her well again. You do. God just told you, Second Chronicles 7.14. God promised you, and he's done it before. You've read it countless times. It's in your hands. We're not waiting on him. He's waiting for us. Don't say, why doesn't God do something? God is saying, why don't you do something? God is ready to meet the conditions of revival. And there's no one here, there's no one here that will ever go before God on his terms with humility, seeking his face, praying, turning from wicked ways, where God will not come through with a fresh touch from heaven. It can't happen. God promises to come through every time. Now, Robert Murray McShane had this kind of movement. He was a powerful tool for revival in Scotland. And he pastored the Church of St. Peter in Dundee. And God used him powerfully to stoke revival. Uh, Larger churches, in fact, would offer McShane uh, their pulpits to pastor the church and a whole lot more money and a larger opportunity. But he graciously refused them all because he was content uh, with his church in Dundee because while the other churches could offer him more money, none of them could offer him more time to pray. And he would not sacrifice his time in prayer in order to fill his day up with more work just to get a larger paycheck. And God used him powerfully to stoke revival in Dundee. In fact, he's still influencing the world. Uh, His um, journalism biographies are oftentimes assigned to preaching students in our seminaries. Let's look at number three here then. What would you change if you could? You know, something that's beyond you, where God has to intervene. What would you change? Let's write three things down here. One about yourself and about your family and about your service to God. What would you change? Look at those things there and think for just a moment. Are these in the will of God? Are these the kinds of things God's interested in? All right. Probably so. Here's what I want you to do now. I want you to go ask God for these things. And I want you to trust that if they're in God's will, he's going to come through. Let's do that now. And I'll close this in prayer in just a moment. God, you've never lied to us. You've always been true. And there is no one that's true like you. 
you surpass all. And you not only tell the truth, but you keep truth. You're faithful. And you're able to make predictions about the future because you can come through with every one of them. Everything from Israel's and Judah's deportation and captivity to their return to the birth of Christ and all of his ministry and resurrection and even to his return and in between your powerful movement in your churches thank you that everything about the past the present and the future can inspire us and encourage us to have hope that you hear our prayers for revival Lord, we've listed some things about ourselves and families in our service that, oh God, we want to see change and we want to give them to you. We know oftentimes you surprise us in how you answer them and usually far better than we could ever imagine, almost always different than what we conceive, but we give them to you. And we ask you to come through and make these changes that we might be revived, and that Jesus may be glorified, ourselves, our family, that our service might be revived. We yield that before you, and, oh God, we trust you. I think of David, who said, Lord, in the morning I'll lift my prayer, and then I'll look on high. He would look on high for an answer, and wait on you, and look expectantly for you to come through. Lord, these things we've put before you, I, I suspect many of them, if not all of them, are much bigger than we are. Even the smallest request usually is. And, oh, God, if you don't come through, these things aren't going to happen. And we fear we'll not be as effective for you as we could be. We fear Jesus will not be glorified as much as he could be. So, oh, God, for the sake of Christ and for the sake of your name, that you might be known as love and faithful and mercy, that you might be known as Father. Holy God, would you come through and revive these areas that we have listed today. Thank you for hearing us. We love your name, we bless your name, and we worship your name. And we do pray in that matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Bless you and have a good evening.